had some soul to it. I don't have any soul. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I don't have a whole lot of rhythm. I have a hard time clapping. But I'll tell you what, by the end of that song, I, I, I got it, I think. I think. All right, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and flip there. And uh, I'm going to ask you to rise out of reverence for the reading of God's words, if you would, please. 1 Peter chapter 5, actually, I'm going to start in verse 19, and then we'll go through chapter 5, verse 5. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so this is exactly like a thus saith the Lord coming to us this morning. This is what God has spoken, and this should come with authority. As Jared spoke last week about sola scriptura, scripture alone, uh, that is our authority. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful game, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble." Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning uh, by the wounds of Christ that we just sung about. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. God, we are here by the shed blood of our, our lamb, our Jesus. Uh, we have a lamb, though, that is not dead. We have a lamb standing uh, as though slain. He is alive, and he is pleading God, I thank you. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are praying for us and mediating for us even in this moment and that your words have great power. Your prayers have great power even as they are working because you are the, the righteous one. You are the righteous man and your prayers have great power. So we praise you for mediating for us and praying for us even now in this moment. I just pray that you would send Holy Spirit. I pray that you would come and that you would open the eyes of the blind, you would quicken the dead, you would raise the dead. I pray that you would teach us, I pray that you would illuminate us, I pray that you would turn the lights on in our hearts, in our minds, and shed light on these truths this morning. Help us to understand, God, apart from you, we can do nothing, we cannot understand. So I just pray that you would help us to understand. We pray in Jesus' name for your glory, King Jesus. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I was 27 years old, and I think, Jenny, I think we had something like about $100 in our checking account. Uh, we were living in Owensboro, and that's when we accepted the call to become a pastor at Fellowship Baptist Church in Vienna. That's been a little over seven years ago now. Um, and Ricky Cunningham was my pastor during the season that I came to Christ down at Murray State down there for about four years and sat underneath his preaching for about those four years, had a great impact on me. And so 
uh, I invited him to come and, and give my ordination sermon. It was on a Sunday night. And the sermon was great. Um, he talked about laying your life down for the sheep and, and so on and so forth. But the, the, the line that really got me that shook my bones, I was sitting in the front row, and he kind of looked down at me, and he, he gave this solemn charge. And he, he spoke to me you know, with a quiet voice, kind of like a father would speak down to his son. And he looked me right square in the eyes, and he said, Russ, this is going to cost you your life. And then he just paused. And it, shook, it just really resonated within me, and it, it, it really shook me to my core. I didn't really understand what, obviously I couldn't understand all that he meant by that. I'd never pastored a church before. Uh, and I still am learning what that means. I still don't have it all down. But over, you know, pastoring the church over those years, I learned more and more about what that means. It's going to cost you your life. And it, mean, it means it not just physically, but on every level, it's going to cost you your life. Um, we're going to be discussing God's design for church government today. Uh, we're going on in our church membership mini-series. Uh, last week, Jared uh, preached on uh, the sola scriptura, scripture alone, as our authority. Uh, we don't go to our inclinations, our emotions, or to the world uh, for our authority. Uh, we go to God and God's word for our authority. And before that, he, he spoke on the family and roles within that family. Uh, husbands and wives are equal and have roles that are very valuable and uniquely designed by God. And today, all this is, is spilling over now into church life. There's a, there's a plan for all these sermons and all these teachings. They all go together. And so, uh, last week, he taught on uh, the, the Word of God. And I love what John Calvin says about God's Word. He says that the Word of God is the scepter through which King Jesus rules His church. The Word of God is the scepter through which King Jesus rules His church. And so, we have witnessed and experienced a variety of ways uh, that people do church. You, everybody in this room, you know, some of us have grown up in church, some of us have been in church for a little while, so on and so forth. All of us come out of a variety of different backgrounds. All of us have probably experienced church done in a variety of different ways. If I were to ask you this morning, what is your understanding of church? What would you say? What is church? What are we doing here? Why do we do what we do? Why do you believe what you believe about church? Where did you gain your understanding about church? Where did it come from? Have you just believed what you believe about the church to be true simply because you grew up doing it that way? Or is your understanding of the church shaped and conformed by the scepter of King Jesus? Your authority. Most importantly, it doesn't really so much matter. Here's the thing, it might be disheartening to some of you. It doesn't really matter what you believe about church. What, does, what is God's way? What does God say about church? Because that's the only thing that matters. So if you were to go in with a clean slate today, all right, I got, I got a clean chalkboard here, a clean white sheet of paper, and church, I want us to go to God's Word and just kind of examine a few things. And I'm going to begin, because uh, this is a lot to cover in one sermon, uh, you know, about church government. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin with uh, some things in mind, some assumptions or some presuppositions uh, before we begin, and I'm going to assume these things as we go into uh, the sermon today. So I've got, I've got five, actually six 
little sub points that uh, some presuppositions before we go into the sermon today. So if you want to write these down, you can. If not, then I, I get it. That's fine too. But um, the first presupposition or assumption that I'm making going into this sermon is that uh, God is organized. God is organized. So when you look at the universe, I think we'd all agree that the universe has a design to it. You pick up a pine cone, for example. You look at that pine cone. It's a, there's a design. You pick up a sea biscuit out of the ocean. You see it's actually a cross-shaped uh, design right on, the, right on the front of it. It's, the world is designed. You are designed. You have fingerprints. You have eyes. You have eye color. You have emotions. Your body is designed. I think we'd agree that the universe is designed and it has been organized a certain way. There are laws. There are physical laws that govern the universe. In the same way, uh, obviously God is organized. He's organized the universe in his image. And then, then he goes on and the church is organized as well. So when we read in the Bible, the, the, the church is referred to as the body of what? The body of Christ. Does it say the amoeba of Christ? Or the blob of Christ? No, it says the body of Christ. There's a spine, there's a skeletal system, there's an organization to it. It's not just this blob amoeba thing that just kind of oozes everywhere. The church is organized because God is organized. And so I think, you know, if you notice the progression of, of the sermon series, and if you notice the progression, if you read uh, 1 Timothy, for example, before Paul gets into the qualifications for elders or pastors and the qualifications for deacons, Paul has gone over roles within the household. He talks about the family before he transitions over into the church. That's not a, that's not a uh, coincidence. God, the God made the family and designed the family first before He made the church. So everything that goes on in the family and God's design for the family oozes over and spills over into the church. God, in the beginning God, then family, then church. It's organized. Secondly, God has within this organization of this body, He has organized it such that there are two offices, and only two. And those two offices are, and there's different words for the same office, these two offices of leadership. There are pastors, elders, bishops, presbyters, overseers, shepherds. All those are all facets of the same diamond. Functions of the same office. And then you have deacons. So you've got pastors, deacons, elders, deacons, presbyters, bishops, whatever you want to call them. They're all the same office. And then you have deacons. And then third, for a single local organized church, there is to be a plurality or a multitude of both pastors and deacons, if possible. And there are some circumstances where it's not possible. I get that. But in an ideal situation, you've got a plurality of deacons, you've got multiple deacons, and you've got multiple pastors or elders. And I think the reason that it looks different a lot of times in our modern church today is because the modern church in general has slipped into the error of pragmatism. We're just doing things for pragmatical benefit. And ultimately, we've gone to something besides God's Word for our instruction for how the church should be organized. So, for example, we'll go to uh, 
the Fortune 500 companies. What are they doing that is working? What are they doing to grow their companies? What are they doing to grow their budgets? What are they doing to, what is working for them? And so what we do is we end up adopting and reading things about the world and how they do things, and then it's spilling over into the church instead of God's word spilling over into the church. So what does that look like practically? Well, it looks like what a lot of us have seen. You've got one CEO. You've got a bunch of committees underneath that CEO. Or you have one elected official, like a president. And then you have a group of people, a democracy underneath the president. And that's how it works. So you've got CEOs and committees and elected officials governing the church instead of a body of God-called, God-qualified men pastoring the church. Instead of the church, here's what happens. And I've seen it happen this way. This is what happens. Instead of a band of shepherds leading the sheep, the sheep ultimately begin to lead the shepherd. So you've got a group of elected officials with a democracy underneath. Instead of the church following the pastor, what ends up happening is the pastor or the elected official is subject to those who elected him into office. What happens? What are, the, what are some possible errors and implications of this erroneous form of church government is you end up having the sheep leading the shepherds instead of the shepherds leading the sheep. And you have a disaster waiting to happen. And unfortunately, that's what we've seen uh, in our modern church today. And this error leads to a, uh, a smothering of the leading of the Spirit within the church. Number four, deacons are not pastors. I'm assuming that it's biblical. You've got clear-cut two distinctions within the Bible. Pastors, deacons. Deacons are not pastors. Pastors are not deacons. These are two distinct offices of the church. Number five, the, as we talked about earlier, family was created before the church. Paul teaches on the family and roles within the family before he turns to the theater of the church. He must manage his own household what? Well. 1 Timothy Chapter 3. So where are we going? Again, this is another error the church often makes. We form what's called a pastor search committee. We go out and we collect resumes. They're called resumes. And we send them into the pastor search committee from Idaho and North Dakota and Alaska and all over the place. Then we have this group of, of sheep go through the, the resumes. And we look and see all the qualifications there and how all their little kind of their brag sheet. And then we call them based on their resume. Maybe we've heard them preach a couple of sermons. Where do you see that in the Bible? Do you see that anywhere in the Bible? I don't. Now, you can enlighten me after the service is over. I'd love to hear where it's at. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. What I see is Paul says he must manage his own household well. Do we go to a resume primarily to look for a pastor? No. Where do we go? We ultimately examine him within the life of a local church, within the life of the church, we're examining him and how his relationship with his family is. Is he managing his own household well? What is his character like? Is he humble? Does he meet the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus and in 2 Timothy? That primarily we don't go to a resume. We go to the family structure to see how he's doing it. If he has the gift of celibacy or is yet to be married, does he have a biblical understanding of the family and his role within it? Those are, that's where we need to go more so than to a resume. Number six, pastors and deacons are men. 
They're males. So if we remember Pastor Jared's sermon from a couple of weeks ago on gender and roles within the family, notice the progression. Family spills over to church. Family spills over to church. Husbands and wives are equal, and they have unique, special, and God-designed roles. Nobody's better or worse than the other. And in 1 Timothy 3, qualification for Pastor Deacons, after he addresses male and female functions in the church, family spills over into the church. If we get the family unit wrong, we get church wrong. That's the implication. So if you have a two-headed monster within the household, and they're both wanting to rule and dominate the other, what's the church going to look like? You're gonna, it's going to look the same way. You've got women wanting to dominate and rule over the man. You've got men wanting to dominate and rule over the woman. And you've got a two-headed monster, and they're biting at each other all the time. If that's what our understanding of family is like, then our understanding of church won't be far behind it. That's, that's why we started family first. I tell you, this mystery is profound. Christ and the church, husband and wife, Ephesians chapter 5. So I just want to read this. Let's just, see, let's just read, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Go ahead and flip there if you want to. I want you to see how Paul does it. First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And then we're going to go through 3, 5. It says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam, notice where he goes. He goes to the creation of the family unit. It goes right to creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Then he goes right into overseers, right into qualifications for overseers, right out of that. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone excuse me, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Okay? So, if he's not managing his own household well, how can he possibly care for the church? You see the implications there. You see how it's all laid out. So... Um, and then if you read on, you'll see he goes to the office of deacon right after he goes to the, to the overseers there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then we'll, I'm hoping that maybe we'll come back to, to deacons perhaps next week. We'll see how this all goes today. And uh, perhaps we'll come back to deacons next week because they're obviously very important as well. Uh, so with all those assumptions in mind, let's, let's look at uh, our 1 Peter chapter 4, 19 through 5, 5. And so I want you to notice right there out of the gate in verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Who does he draw our attention to right out of the gate? He draws our attention right out of the gate to Jesus Christ. Right out of the gate. The suffering of Jesus Christ. So if you can imagine like a, a darkened theater, and you're in that theater, and then imagine there is a beam, a, a, a spotlight, a beam of light going down onto that darkened stage, on that stage is the crucified Christ, the, the, the Lamb of God, the suffering Lamb of God. That's what Peter is wanting us to focus on 
as we move through these next few verses. So the focus is not on, the focus is on Jesus. The focus is not on so much the elders. It's on Jesus. He's our example. He's our front runner. He's the trailblazer. He's the example. And so that's who we are to focus on as we go on. So he says, stare at Jesus as the Spirit reveals to us what pastors are to look like. God's will for pastors. And notice what he says. I love what he says there in 419. It says, Entrust your soul to a faithful creator, so I exhort the elders among you. So I want us to have this vision. All right, the spotlight is on the Lamb in the darkened theater. There's a spotlight right there on center stage is the Lamb of God. I want us to, I want us to begin with this vision in our mind. Look at, look at Revelation chapter 5 really quick. And man, it's so tempting just to preach out of Revelation 5. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Chapter 5, I'm just going to read 6 through 10. So this is where the spotlight is here in this sermon. Okay? And everything else is going to flow down from this, this lamb, this vision. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, and notice there's elders in heaven. Notice that. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, a multitude of elders, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. This is a song that had never been sung before in the history of creation. In the history of eternity, this song had never been sung before. This is the first time. And here's what it says. Worthy are you, King Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is missions. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's church. That's church. That's the biblical understanding of what church is like. King Jesus reigning over His kingdom. Who is His kingdom? The church is His kingdom. They are His people. We are His people. And He is ruling us with the scepter of His Word. And that is the vision that Peter wants us to have, that the Spirit... under wants us to have as we traverse through 1 Peter chapter 5. So there are four points, four things that, that we're going to have in this sermon this morning. We've got our assumptions that we're already assuming, our presuppositions as we're going into these. With those things being said, here are the four points that we're going to mine out of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The first one is this, and because the context, these are directed at Three of them are for the pastors, and there's going to be one that we're going to close with that's to the church. So three points directed at pastors, and we're going to learn what the character of the pastors ought to be. And then the fourth one is going to be about the church and what the church's role is within this. And this is the way the church is to be organized. Okay? Number one, shepherd the flock willingly, not under compulsion. So there is a willingness that these pastors have under 
the kingship of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Underneath that, with the, that vision of Christ under him, we're humbled underneath that. There is a willingness to do this work. It's not a compulsion. Secondly, do the work eagerly, not for shameful or greedy gain. Do the work will, eagerly, not for shameful or greedy gain. Then number three, be an example, not a dominator. Be an example, not a dominator. So these are things that the church should be looking for at, in their pastors. These are qualifications. If we, if we call more pastors out, out in the future, these are things that we need to be looking for. These are qualifications. These are characteristics, character traits that we should look for. They should be an example, not a dominator. And then fourth, there's a final exhortation to the flock. And that is this, humbly subject yourself to the elders, ultimately the chief elder, Christ. So here's the chief elder, we submit to him, how do we do that? You do it by submitting to his under-shepherds and their leadership, their spirit-led, humble leadership. Okay. Number one, shepherd the flock willingly, not under compulsion. I'm reminded, I worked this camp down in Alabama, and if you hear me preach much, you'll hear me reference this from time to time about this camp in Alabama. There was a guy, we called him Mr. Charles. And Mr. Charles was an elder of his church down there, but he also founded this camp. It was called Maranook, and it's still going on. And, and uh, basically, he has this, this phrase or this sentence that he uses that, uh, that has always stuck with me. He says, you don't got to, you get to, because he got you. You get it? So... You don't got to, you get to. And he's got a big Georgian Southern draw with it. I can't, I'm not even going to attempt to do that for you. But you don't got to, you get to, because he got you. You get it? So there's this element of gratitude that comes with that. And uh, that's what ministry is all about. Philemon, chapter 1, verse 14. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Not by compulsion, but of your own accord. So are pastors forced into pastoring? Is it arbitrary? Are we bound by a contract? Is it something that's, hey, we got our hand behind our back, they're forcing us into this thing? I don't know. Not according to this passage. I've heard some people teach that, it, you know, don't pastor unless you cannot do anything else. I think there's an element of truth to that because you're never going to be satisfied. I think that the emphasis on that isn't that, okay, I have to do this. I'm begrudgingly going into this thing because I have to. That's not the thing. It's, it's a satisfaction thing. I will not be satisfied unless I am shepherding the flock of God. That's, that's the emphasis here. It's not an arbitrary contract. I signed a contract, so now I have to. I'm just going to kind of grip my teeth and I'm going to grind. I'm going to grind my way through this. That's not what we're getting at right here at all. So again, we consider Jesus on the stage. Did he, was he bound by a contract where he just, okay, I'm going to begrudgingly go to the cross because I have to? No, he willfully chose. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it up again. Jesus willingly Embrace the cross for you. Willingly. It wasn't because he had to do it. He chose freely to do it. 
if there is one being in this entire universe that has free will, it is God, is it not? God does whatever He pleases. I'm in the heavens, I do all that I please. Whatever He pleases, He does. And God was pleased to go to the cross and embrace it. He laid down His life for you willingly, not under compulsion. His love for you is not arbitrary. Nobody forces the Trinity to do anything that He does not want to do. Nobody puts the arm of God behind His back and twists it and forces Him to say, Uncle. God freely acts. And He does things freely. And He does it out of mere pleasure. He created you because He wanted to. He died for you because He wanted to. He was raised from the dead, loosed from death because He wanted to be. He gave you an inheritance because He was pleased to give you an inheritance. God called Jared, God called Andy, God called me to pastor this church because He wanted to. You are here in this church because God wanted you to be here. You've not merited salvation. You've not merited the kingdom of God. You have not earned it. Thankfully, behold the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. Quit looking at yourself. God saved you because God wanted to save you. God reached down. He descended and came for you because He wanted to come for you because He loves you. My Silas asked me this morning, why does God love me? And the answer from the, from the, he kept asking me why over and over again. I was like, son, that's a great question. Keep asking why, because ultimately, when you ask why about anything, ultimately it keeps leading, it'll lead you back to God. There's no other explanation. Why does God love you? According to Deuteronomy, according to the Bible, God loves you because he loves you. He chooses to. So I think it's awesome when, when, when Andy leads us in song and the praise team leads us in song. All of our songs that we sing, they're about God and God's character and God's love for us more so than they are about our love for Him. Because my love is toward God is like shifting sand. Every wave that comes through, it, it changes. I, my, my grip on God is finite. It's creaturely. It's weak. His grip on me is eternal and infinite. His salvation is from everlasting to everlasting. So it'll never get old. It's incorruptible. It'll never rust. It'll never fade. It'll never get sick. It'll never die. God's love for you is infinite and eternal. Therefore, you can sing about it for eternity. It'll never die. It'll never grow old. So we're not here by compulsion. We are here by the will of our Father. And that ought to cause us to weep for joy, and that ought to humble us. So it's so easy to overlook that phrase there in verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So again, the direction, the gaze is not so much at you, it's as God would have you. That's where he's always directing our gaze toward God. We consider the gospel over and over and over again. God who laid down his life for us willingly, and therefore we are to shepherd Christ church willingly as God would have us. So we follow the front runner. We stare at the Christ on the stage. We stare at him, and then we lead willingly, not under compulsion because he willingly leads us. Secondly, 
We do the work eagerly, not for shameful or greedy gain. So a question here, do you love your wife or you love your spouse because of what she does for you? Or do you love your wife because she's beautiful, because you're attracted to her, because you enjoy her? So I, th- I think that uh, there, are so- there are many so-called pastors out there who are in this thing to advance their own agendas and their own kingdoms. And it's, it's ugly. It's not beautiful. It's, it's actually revolting. Um, let me just ask, how, how content are we, how content are you to, be, to, to live in obscurity? Do we have to be known? Are we driven by desire to be known in a convention? Are we driven by desire to be known in a network? Are we driven by desire to be known even within the church and our communities and our workplace? Are you just content to be in Christ? What, is that not enough for you? Or do you have to have notoriety to go with it? I, I'm here to tell you, there, there are men of whom the world is not worthy and women of whom the world is not worthy around at the ends of the earth who will not be known by, by anybody outside of their families and the small group of believers that they have within that church. And the Bible, Hebrew says, they are, they are of whom the world is not worthy. They're not going to be presidents of any convention. They're not going to be well-known with some network. They're just faithful. Just faithful. God, God calls faithful people. He uses faithful people to do extraordinary things. He uses the ordinary. You've heard that cliche. He, does, he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Because what happens when you're weak? And what happens when you're ordinary? then the extraordinary can only be explained by His power working within you. So who ultimately gets the glory in that case? God does, not man. The call to pastor is a call to die, not be known. And there's deep fellowship with Christ as you're suffering and as you're beholding Him on that stage. The Lamb standing as though He's been slain. He's not dead anymore, He's standing. And you're beholding Him and you know that there's hope for you in this. There's deep fellowship with Him in this. There are things to be learned in the crucible of that pain and in that suffering that cannot be taught in any seminary or any classroom or by any professor or in any book. Those things are experiential. Those things are spiritual. And those things you can't put into a mathematical formula. You might be able to write a poem or a song about it. Those are the spiritual things. Those are the eternal things. And those are the things that God is calling us to and sanctifying us into. Why do we do it again? It's because of the gospel. It's because the husband of the church eagerly died for her. So the pastors in America, is this, this calling to pastor, it's not a vocation. It's a calling. It's a call to die and it's a call to die for a bride. Notice the family language. It's all over the Bible. It's all about, there's family language everywhere. It's a call to love. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. 
Lay down your time, your energy, your dreams, your aspirations, your coveting heart, your desire to be worshipped, your desire to be adored. Lay down your reputation. Kill it all. all. Jesus says, all you need is me. All you have is me. So this desire to be worshipped and adored, it's horrible. Build a mega church. Be the CEO of your church. Be the president of your church. Be big. It's worldly. Not biblical. Here's the thing. Speaking to pastors, this is what this is going over. They're not... People don't come to see pastors. People come to gain a vision of Christ. That's why we're here. I, I, hope, I hope we just disappear. My, my prayer for sermons, worship, singing, that this group over here would just kind of fade away in that spotlight, like we just kind of go down into that darkness around the stage. We just kind of be down there, and then that spotlight is on the risen Lamb. And that's, that's the, we're here for a vision. That's why you come. That's why you gather. We need a vision from the Lord, and apart from vision, the people perish. That's not talking about a CEO model. That's not a Fortune 500 church growth model. Without vision, the people perish. That's not what it's talking about. A vision of God, the people perish. Without a vision of God, the people will perish. That's what should govern our everything we do as, when we gather as a church body. Here's the husband that laid down his life for his bride. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he attractive? Don't you want others to come into contact with this? Number three, be an example, not a dominator. Be an example, not a dominator. The Greek word for domineering, it's only used four times in the New Testament. Here's one of them. Acts chapter 19, verse 16. And the man in whom, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastering all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's the Greek word for domineering that's used here in 1 Peter chapter 5. The others talk about Gentile leaders ruthlessly ruling over a people. That's the Greek word for domineering. So you've got this stark difference, this contrast between leading a people and dominating people, between being an example and being domineering. So you think about Pharaoh. Think about Moses. Here's the contrast. Both of them led people, right? One of them led, led his people into an encounter with God and led his people into the will of God. He was just a messenger to get out of the way. And then Pharaoh over here thinks he is God. Both of them were in leadership. One was trying to advance their kingdom. The other one was trying to advance the kingdom of God. And it happens in churches all the time where you have more of a Pharaoh-type Pharaoh leadership where it's all about their kingdom and their advancement and their reputation and they're being well-known, and they're being famous, and, hey, come buy some tickets and come see me at this conference. And that's what it's all about. And then you've got the guy over here that just kind of fades away. In fact, is I almost don't want to be known because of all the pride that might come with it and all the struggles that come with it. Um, so there's an example. Examples, I heard it put this way. I read this in some, some commentary. I didn't come up with this, but examples are used. To illustrate. Examples are used to illustrate or point to something else. Dominators use others. Examples are used or worn out or used 
to point to something else. Dominators use others to accomplish their purposes. So how, how is it that we gain this ability and this desire to be used? How do we gain this supernatural humility? It doesn't, it doesn't come up in our flesh. We don't want that. We want to be known and recognized. We want a trophy. That's what we want in our flesh. Where does this supernatural humility come from? It comes from God. It has to. It comes from the Gospel. It comes from beholding the risen Lamb that was slain. Humility is the type, if you read all these qualifications, humility is kind of that, that um, unmentioned tie, this invisible tie that binds all these things together. If you read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and those qualifications for elders and deacons, humility is a tie that binds all those qualifications together. If a man is not humble, if a man is not teachable, if a man is not willing to learn from others, then in our mind, in the Bible's mind, he's not fit for leadership in the church. Because if Christ is our chief shepherd and Christ is an example of humility, then how can we be an under-shepherd if we aren't humble? How can we be qualified if we're not humble like he is? So humility is one of the main things that we should look for when we're looking for church leaders. Teachability. People that don't think they know all the answers. People that are constantly learning from anybody and everybody. Somebody that can learn from a child. Those are the kinds of guys you want leading you. So Jesus is that example. He's hung naked on a cross. He was used by his Father to illustrate infinite love. So if you don't know what infinite love looks like, look at Jesus. He's our example. And I hope and pray and pray for us that, we, that Andy and Jared and myself never lose that desire to just be used. And sometimes that means being walked on and trampled on. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. All right. Number four. And this is a final exhortation of the flock, and this is what this is getting into church membership. This is getting into what church looks like. What is church? What are we doing? Humbly subject yourselves to the elders. Now, if you just hear that, there's, there, there could be a part of you, an inclination, that doesn't like to hear that. Do you like to be called like a subject? or to be thought of as under something. Nobody naturally likes that. But that's what the Bible says. It says, humbly subject yourselves to your elders. So, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, not just the pastors, this is to the church, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you come to God with an empty cup, what does He give you? He gives you Niagara Falls. He, he, he's wasteful with His grace. He just lavishes you with grace. If you come to Him with an empty cup, you come to Him with a full cup, is there any room for any, any grace to fit in there? No. You come to God empty, open hands, and He satisfies your soul. That's what God does. Humble. Humility. Broken. Teachable. So Peter's what he's done is he's hammered these pastors with these three exhortations. Now he comes and comes to the churches. So, so some of you might be thinking, well, I'm going to get off the hook today. No, you don't get off the hook today. He's coming after everybody in the church today. 
So again, this church is much like a marriage. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul mentions the roles of men and women in 1 Timothy. Husbands and fathers are to be pastors of their homes. Those who are trustworthy and mature in these things are to be considered gifted and qualified for pastors and deacons. And then it says here in chapter 5, it is the flock that is subject to subject herself to the shepherds, not the other way around. It is the flock that is to subject herself, the bride, Ephesians chapter 5, it is to subject herself to Christ. It is a bride who is to subject herself to the elders, not the other way around. So what does it mean then to join a church? How does the Bible define that? How does the Bible see that? Is it like joining the Moose Lodge? Is it joining the country club? Is it like going to a restaurant to get served? Where the restaurant's there to serve you, and that's what it's all about. And if you don't get your steak cooked the right way, you quit tipping and go off to another restaurant. That's consumerism. That's not, that's not Christianity. What, again, what, don't listen to your heart. It's the worst counsel anybody can give you is to listen to your heart. And that's all you get from the world. That'll lead you straight to hell. L- listen to God's Word. What does God's Word say? Is it, are we lying to you? Is this a lie? Or is this what the Bible is teaching? Because if this is what the Bible is teaching, if it is true, then you have a responsibility to subject your soul underneath this teaching. And what God is teaching The Bible teaches that what it means to join a church is to subject your soul to the chief elder by submitting to the leadership, the spirit-led leadership of the elders. It does not mean to join a restaurant and demand to be served. In other words, it's, it's not as accurate to say that you join a church as it is to say that you humbly submit to one. It's more accurate to say you submit to a church than it is to say you, you join a church. The joining has this connotation that's, that's like a moose lodge or a fraternity or a sorority. You join those things. But when you come, under, when you come into a church, it's, hey, I'm, I'm going to lay my life down, I'm going to lay my soul down for the guy to the left and to the right of me. And, I'm gonna, and ultimately what it means to submit, it means to trust. Uh, Jenny went to, went to a conference somewhere and heard one of the teachers define submissiveness as ultimately it means to trust the Lord and His design and His way. And it's really freeing when you don't, you, when you don't have to, you just have to trust. You trust God's leadership. Unless that leadership is leading you off into sin, just, just release it. And let God lead, trust God to lead those guys that God has entrusted or God has, that God has placed over your soul. That's God's way of doing it. That's how He communicates. That's how He leads. He leads through these under-shepherds. So again, it looks strikingly similar to a biblical marriage. Spiritual leaders laying down their lives for sheep willingly and eagerly. Sheep humbly following their lead as they follow their chief shepherd. And what you have is not a two-headed monster anymore. What you have is a harmonious circle. And what church becomes when you put all this together is church becomes the theater through which God's love for us is displayed. Because you've got a church, you've got a leader, the leader of the church laying down his life, washing the feet of his disciples, 
you've got that example, you've got that going on, and then you've got the church humbly submitting to that leadership. And what you have is a harmonious circle, and what you have is the reversal of the Genesis 3 curse, which says, "My desire, his desire shall be for you, and you shall rule over him. You have a reversal of the two-headed monster curse. And when that happens, you've got something beautiful. This is what church is meant to be. And then we image God. We image our Creator. So next week, we're going to talk about deacons, and we're going to talk about God's design for them in the church. And I know that we covered a lot of... There's a lot more that could be said about this. But if you have any questions about these things, so we ask the praise team to come back up. Uh, feel free to come, in, come and talk to me about them. But I want you to ask yourself this morning if you've been lied to. And if there is a lie, I want to know about it. You come and tell me where I lied to you. Come and tell me where, where this was not true. But think about it. If, this, if all these things are true, there's great freedom in this. You've got a group of God-called, God-qualified leaders under shepherds leading your soul. You don't have one CEO. You've got a team of them. And these guys are holding themselves accountable. And then they're holding you accountable. And you're holding us accountable. And we've got this harmonious circle going right here. We pray and we prayerfully seek God's direction for the church. We lead you within the boundaries of God's word. You trust the Lord by submitting to the pastors. You're free. There's, great, there's peace in that. You don't have to, to rule everything. And then, by God's grace, God leads us into spacious places and, and keeps us from evil. This is God's way. And then next week, hopefully we'll get to come back and talk about the deacons because the deacons' role is very vital within the church. I call them the offensive line. They're the, the, who is it? The quarterbacks a lot of times get too much glory. That's why one of the things about football I don't like. I'm sorry, Taylor, Todd. But the, the offensive line is, is, is the group of guys that drives that ball down the field. And they put the ball in the end zone. And I, I think of those deacons, like that offensive line, man. They're, they're grinding that ball down the, down the field. And uh, we'll get, hopefully get to come back next week. But let me pray for us. And, again, if you have any questions uh, or concerns about anything that we've taught this morning, I'd love nothing more than to talk to you. And uh, we'll be, uh, Jared and Andy would love to talk to you as well, I'm sure. But let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for your design. You're the designer. God, you've designed everything in this universe, especially your church, your bride, your body. You call us your body. How, how intimate is that? And just as you are organized, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, you have organized your body in a certain way and to function a certain way. And God, we trust you. you, you we are not wise. God, we're not smart. Uh, we're nowhere near as wise and smart as we sometimes think we are. Uh, but you are infinitely wise. You are infinitely good. You are love. And God, we trust you this morning. We submit to your leadership. You are the chief shepherd. I pray, God, that as we sing, God, that our gaze would be turned away from ourselves, would be turned away from this room altogether. I pray that you would direct our hearts and our our minds, our bodies, uh, to see the Lamb that was slain standing, holding the scroll 
You've ransomed a people for yourself from every tribe, tongue, and language. You've made us a kingdom on the earth. God, I pray that these things would grip us and control us and captivate us as we sing. In Christ's name, amen.